Please join me. Let's take up our Bibles. And as people of the Word of God, let's open them to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. The book of Hebrews chapter 11. It's been well over a year now since we started our study in Hebrews. We now find ourselves approaching the latter chapters. We're now about halfway through, a little better, Hebrews chapter 11, known by some as the faith chapter and also the endurance chapter of those of faith. If you'll begin following along as I start to read chapter 11, beginning in verse 24, verse 24, by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." By faith he kept the, the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord God, we pray that your word would have its will done in our lives. You've told us that your word will not return to you void, but is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces even to the separation of joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. So Lord, we pray, discern our hearts, know our hearts, and where each one is today, and penetrate us with your word so that we would understand we would know you as our God. We would know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, whom you sent and who reigns and leads us to you, Lord God. Bless these words this morning, for just a man delivers them, but your words are mighty. Do the work you would have done in each of us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Studying Hebrews chapter 11 is glorious, but it's only glorious if you've studied chapters 1 through 10. You see this as a point to which the writer was building and God leading. For every person wants to know what is faith. What is it really like? What does it mean if you have faith or don't have faith? What is good faith and what is bad faith? You might say, Pastor Fred, is there a bad faith? Yes, there is. Bad faith is putting your faith in something bad or untrue. For instance, if you put your faith into a rotten plank that crosses over the river, that's bad faith. And that rotten plank will see you swimming in the river. 
not saving you from a dunking. You put your faith in a good bridge, solid foundation, bulwarks, and then you cross the river. And that's what every Christian must do. Put their faith in the bridge to God, and that is Jesus Christ, the Savior. Only he will get you there. We read the Old Testament so that we might understand the New Testament. We study the Old Testament and those who went before us so that we may follow in their pattern of believing the truth that God gave them. And in doing so, we can follow in their footsteps. Last week, we started to look at Moses, who has a faith that pleased God like the others before him that we have studied. But in this case, we have chosen to entitle it, Faith That Pleases God Chooses God. And that's exactly what Moses did. His faith took action. And action and our actions are based on the choices that we make. If you don't make the choice, you're not going anywhere in faith. You always have to choose. And we must choose God over every other thing in life to become people of faith. Moses made five choices of faith. And he made these five choices of faith as examples for us of what real faith is like that chooses God first. So that we then in our turn may become people who join Moses in faith by choosing God. And if you're going to choose God, I said last week, and I cannot get into it again, I separated that out for it deserved its own sermon. Verses 24 and 25, we saw that by faith, Moses chose God, but he chose God's people as well. Listen, verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing, passing pleasures of sin. He made a choice for God. And when you make a choice for God, you make a choice for God's people. And that's true in the church age that we live in today. If you're going to say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I believe in the one true God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then you choose the people of God as well. And that's hard to do because the people of God, well, they're just like you. And sometimes we're a little rough around the edges. Oh, let's admit it's not just the edges. <laughs> sometimes it's hard to be together in the family that you have now been born into in Christ. Because you don't get to choose your family members. Moses did not get to choose who all these people were. He was part of them and he chose to be part of them and forsook the highest position in Egypt and all of its luxuries and wonders and greatness so he could be part of this people. That's the first step. That's the first choice. This morning I want to get to four other choices so I must move along. Amen. 
to the second choice Moses made as a man of faith choosing God, he chose, he chooses God's reward. He chooses God's reward over other things, even including riches and pleasures. Look at verse 26. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So Moses chose the reproaches that were going to come his way over Christ, through Christ, over the riches of Egypt that he would have at his access, at his fingertips, if you will. He esteemed, my translation says in verse 26, he esteemed the reproach of Christ. And this means by definition to weigh it in a scale. We have seen this word before. By the way, seven times the author of Hebrews will use this Greek term. He's used it twice already, the third in our verse here. But let me go back and remind you what this weighing is like, what this evaluation means. And it has a negative and it has a positive. If you turn back in your Bibles in the book of Hebrews to chapter 10, verse 29, that's the first time we saw its usage. Let me begin in verse 28 by way of context. It says that anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Then verse 29, of how much more punishment do you suppose will he be worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, and here's our word, and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. So God having given this grace, the man evaluates it, he weighs it, he counts it up and says, huh, I don't need that. I don't want the grace of God. I don't need God. I don't think it's worthy of my esteem. I'm walking away from that. That's the negative of evaluating in the wrong direction. That is the lack of faith in God that then, of course, has the punishment associated with it forever. The second time we saw it is in chapter 11, verse 11, by a woman of faith, Sarah, the mother of Israel, the wife of Abraham, she who in her old age, by the way, 90 years of age, birthed the child by the miraculous hand of God. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself, listen, also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because, listen, she judged him faithful who had promised. The word judged is our word. So we've got counted judged, and esteemed all English terms trying to grapple with, trying to surround this one Greek term of weighing and measuring and coming up with an evaluation. 
In truth, it's what we do with gold or treasure that is found. If you find gold, you bring it into the assayer, and he will determine how good it is. Whether it's worthy of laughter, oh, sorry, son, that's what we call fool's gold, which is worth absolutely and completely nothing. It's been assayed, it's been assessed, it's been weighed, it's nothing. But when you have the real deal, there's always a pause. Oh, now that's nice. Now that's good. And you're on the other side of the counter going, how much, how much, how much, how much? It's worthy of keeping. And so when we get to Moses, and we see that he looked at the entirety of his life as an adoptive son of Pharaoh's daughter in the richest superpower in the world of the time, I am sure he had his own chariot. And by the way, we understand chariots in the United States of America because we are car people. We got to drive. And we want the nice drives. The good car. He had the best. But he esteemed the reproach of Christ. He counted it all up and he said, that's not of value. I'll choose the reproach of Christ. And as you read this, did you, like me, say, wait a minute? I'm not that good at math, but I'm pretty sure Jesus was born in the 80s and Moses was born in the B.C.s, like hundreds of years before Christ. What in the world is the writer of Hebrews saying when he says that Moses chose Christ? Chose even the reproach that Christ would suffer over being a son of Egypt. Where did this come from? Let me give you my highly overrated and esteemed position. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us how he knew. A future Christ and let me get away from the Greek just a moment because this is a book written to Hebrews. And the Hebrews have a term that is equal to or synonymous with Christ or Christos. And that is Mashiach, which we would say in our English vernacular, Messiah. Which means the anointed one having the meaning of deliverer. He who will deliver his people. The hope of Israel has always been the hope of a deliverer. And somehow through time this knowledge of Messiah was given for we even in reading Hebrews chapter 11 found out that Abraham somehow knew of this place, this city, which has foundations and whose builder and maker is God that he looked for. 
In verse 10 of Hebrews 11, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. It says that of Abraham, and Abraham doesn't have that in the Bible up to Abraham. So in other words, God does some revelation to certain ones that they pass on that he didn't put in the Bible, and so I cannot exposit them. Nor should I speculate to try to exposit them. All I know is what is in this book, and it's telling me that Moses knew. And Moses weighed the value of someone who would deliver his people even over his own position in Egypt, where he might have even desired to be the deliverer, which thing we shall get to. So he is looking for something that here in our text says was a reward, for he looked to the reward. There's something at the end. Rewards come at the end. And he looked toward a reward. And, 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 and mark it, I didn't say he's looking toward wages. See, if you take on a job, you go for a job interview, if you're smart and you think you did pretty good in the interview, at the end of the interview, it's really important that you ask this question. How much? How much will I make for doing this job for you? I'd like to do this job for you, What's it worth? How much do you pay? And then when you go to work and you put in your time, at the end of the time, you get that set wage. Is that a good thing? That's a good thing. But notice that isn't what Moses was looking for. He's looking for a reward. And you know what's better about rewards than wages? See, wages are what you deserve. You did the work. Here's your wage. Rewards go beyond what you deserve, and they're full of bountiful grace. Somebody finds a man's wallet on the street. It's filled with $100 bills. There's a choice to be made. Do I try and find the guy? Give him his wallet back? That's one choice. There's two other sub-choices, right? Do I give you the wallet back with the money or without? In most cases, a fellow with that many $100 bills in his wallet will be quite happy to get it back. And oftentimes, he's willing to give a reward for the simple act of picking up the wallet and handing it back to him. And sometimes it's one of those $100 bills. And you would say, well, wait a minute. You know, that took me 10 minutes. You know, a couple seconds, pick it up. A couple, oh, there it is. Call the guy, find the guy, give it to him. Pretty easy. 100 bucks. You're not going to make those kind of wages. Well, maybe some of you do, but you don't in the pastorate. So let's just say you get a reward. Wow. God's even better than that. God is a God who likes to reward people. And he's not a wage-giving God. He said, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. 
or think you deserve what he's giving. Let me take you to the Old Testament again, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 51. The prophet proclaims these words of God. Listen to me, he says, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is the law, do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. Listen, but my righteousness is forever, and my salvation from generation to generation, my salvation, my deliverance lasts longer than this life. You may receive the reproaches for a short period of time, may be called names, you may be abused, you may be slighted, you may be put on the side, Moses was ready to pay that price because he had evaluated that God's reward was going to be better than anything Egypt had to offer. We find similar ideas in Hebrews. Notice Hebrews chapter 10, if you wanted to flip back there quickly, and even to verse 32. Hebrews 10, 32, listen. To those who are believers now, the writer says, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, that's another word for enlightened or brought to the light, believing Jesus, you endured a great, listen, a great struggle with sufferings. Partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. This is your lot, Christian. This will happen to you at some place. If you've chosen God, then you've chosen God's people. And if you've chosen God's people, then you've also chosen God's reward that comes at the end, not at the beginning, and you will get reproaches in between. You will suffer. The writer of Hebrews even goes on to say, listen, for you have had compassion on me in my chains, now, now zero in here, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing, knowing what? That you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. These are people who are saying, even the money that we have, the goods that we have, what we own, I'm willing to give it away for the ministry of this writer of Hebrews because I know in the end, I have better things coming. The rewards of heaven. The enduring possession. Egypt passed away. Does anybody want Egypt today? I wouldn't give you two cents to live there. Sorry if you're living in Egypt and you hear this. But in comparison to the grandeur which Egypt once was, that pyramid-building place, it is not that anymore. It is a land not of mighty armies, but of those who dig in the dirt to find evidence of mighty armies and the pharaohs of the past. But heaven is forever Jesus even said it this way. He said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. 
And then he says these confounding, almost perplexing, seemingly out of place words. He says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your what? Your reward in heaven. To look at this life as the passing shadow, to look at all of the names that you could be called, all the beatings that you could take, for even, even the disciples when they were thrown in prison, Peter and John, they got beaten in prison. They were told never to talk about Jesus again. And you know what they did? They came out talking about Jesus and rejoicing that they had been counted. Listen, they had been counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. How foreign is that in our churches today? In our churches today, we have, oh, do these five things and you'll never suffer at all. Do these eight things in your life and your family will be perfect. Do these other things. Buy this book. Go to here. And you'll be in the right church. Everything's going to be super cool, super good, super great. Aren't you great people? Well, God doesn't talk like that. He says it's going to be tough. He says you're going to suffer. He says, who do you choose? Great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Then again in Hebrews chapter 10, as we previously studied, verse 35, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, that's your faith, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. So after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Did you hear that? After you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Maybe that needs emphasis. After you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And now perspective, verse 37, for yet a little while. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come, and he will not tarry. But now for us. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. He chose to suffer. He chose reproach over riches. But he also chose to suffer afflictions rather than the pleasures, all the pleasures that were available to him. The second portion of verse 25, Hebrews 11. He chose rather to suffer with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Well, you know you're in a Baptist church now. Just brought up sin. Well, that's good. But let me tell you that, you should be in a real church. If sin's never brought up in church, you're not in a church. And if sin's never brought up with the deliverance from sin being Jesus Christ and following him, then you're not in a church. But you are in a church where they do, and here you are. Let me tell you this. You know, you got choices to make. I said, and so here's some choices. Suffer or sin's pleasure. Do you need that again, or is it an easy one? You want to suffer or sin's pleasure? Choose. Let me put it this way. There's another word here. Suffer affliction. Do you want ongoing affliction or 
Instant gratification. Hmm. I'm not asking for honesty. I'm not asking you to raise your hands. We know this is really simple in terms of making a choice. But it is very difficult in the reality of sticking with the choice. Can I please have an amen? Yeah, I like pain. <laughs> yeah, Doc, give that broken arm another wrench. Why would I want pain meds? That's for sissies. The reality is that in our flesh, we want instant gratification. We want pleasures. We want them now. But let me also say, God has not made this life you're living devoid of pleasures. Amen? Not devoid of blessings. I mean, you live in Montana. How bad could it be? Try Chicago. I'm just saying. What if that was the choice? I might need to pray just a wee bit on that one. You know, it's popular today to say, I identify as identity. But I want you to notice these key words, and there's one key preposition here. Verse 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction, listen, there it is, you ready? It's a big word. No, it's not small. Little preposition. With. With. With the people of God. See, you're not here to suffer alone. See, if you don't be in a church, you're not in a body of Christ, you're not together, then you are going to suffer alone. There you go. But he chose to suffer with, to identify himself. See, Moses could have kept up the charade, I'm the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I got the clothes, I've got the education, I've got the walk, I got the talk, I got it all. But he chose to step down, not up. Let me ask you something, in all of this stuff uh, where people are now choosing to identify, most of the times it's, an, it's encompassing these things like ethnicity. Notice I don't say race. There's no such thing as other races of people. Let me just clarify something. There's one race of people, and it's called the human race. And all humans are part of it. And we can all chase, trace our ancestry. You got Adam, and you got Eve who's taken out of Adam. And that's your identity. And if you don't like them, take Noah and his wife. Same difference. Sometimes people are choosing their identity based on ethnicity. In our world now, it seems very popular to pick your identity based on sexuality or the illusion of your sexuality. Sometimes on the basis of nationality. You've heard the chant, U-S-A? Yeah, it's real. Or your religiosity. What flavor are you? Oh, we're Baptist. Well, you know, I'm not that vested in Baptist. 
I am vested in Christ, the word of the Bible. I'm not saying we'll change your name. I think that's a cheap way of trying to get people in here. I think people will come in here because of you, how you love one another, how you value the word of God and esteem it or not, and how I do the same things. I'm off track. I need to get back on. Identity. Today I asked you how, how popular would it be to do what Moses did in his day to say, I identify as a Jew, as a Hebrew. In his day, the Hebrews were slaves. Oh yeah, that's what I want to identify as. In our day, they're barricaded into libraries in New York City with chanting mobs bashing on the door calling for their death. Hundreds of thousands marching, proclaiming and crying from the river to the sea meaning wipe them completely off the face of the map, kill them all. Why isn't anybody identifying like that today? See, that's an equivalent to what Moses did. He chose the downtrodden people because they were the people of God, his people. And I think in too many churches... The same thing is happening. We want to look like the world. We want to act like the world. We want to dress like the world. We want to eat like the world. We want to drive like the world. We want to do all those things that the world does and have Christ too. And that doesn't work. The two identities don't jibe. You can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God. You can't love mammon and serve God. You've got to choose the people of God, to suffer with the people of God. And there's a people of God physical, and that's exactly what's going on here in Hebrews. And there's a people of God spiritual. I want to just mark those out quickly if I have time. I don't, but I'm doing it anyway. First, the people of God physical, i.e. the generations, the genetics, I pull this out of Judges not because I want to elucidate what's going on in Judges other than God was ruling his people mediatorily through Judges, but to identify who is considered the people of God in this way. Judges 20, verse 1. So all the children of Israel, there's one identification right there. All the children of Israel came out. Now the locations from Dan to Beersheba as well as from the land of Gilead. So those are marks on the map. And the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord at Mizpah. And the leaders of all the people, listen, here they are identified in this way, all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. So the identifiers here are the people of God are the people of the promised land that was marked out and the people of the 12 tribes of Jacob that became Israel. Those are the people of God physical. Those who 
are Hebrews to which this book was written, the Hebrew believers now. The Hebrews that Moses joined because he's of their genetic pool. He's of Jacob. But now also there are people of a covenant. People of a covenant. That means a promise of God. Second Chronicles 7, I, I mark this. You don't need to turn there. Just listen. Verse 14. If my people, you know this verse. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their what? Land. Let me say again, this is not the land of the United States. We cannot claim this prayer or this word of God. This is specific to Hebrews who live in the land from Dan to Beersheba as well as the land of Gilead between the river and the Mediterranean Sea, between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, and the covenant, my people. I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Why their land? God gave them the land. Let me just be geopolitical just for a moment. The land of Israel should not be Israel's because the United States and a consortium of Great Britain and other countries gave it to them in 1948. That is not why Israel should be in the land. That is not worth defending. Nations rise, nations fall. If we fall, should they have to leave? No, this is a promise God made to Abraham, and he made it indelibly, meaning you can't erase it with your best eraser. You can't delete it with your best, you know, control-alt-delete. Do they even do that anymore? I remember doing that. Then get rid of it or whatever. You can't get rid of it. It's there. So Israel is to be defended as having that land for this reason. God created all the land. God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees said, Go to a land I'm going to give to you and your descendants forever. And here's where it is. And he gave the boundaries of the land. That's why I defend Israel in the land. And because they're God's people, and God also said in that first promise, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I just have a word for Hamas. Cursed. Quit. Repent. Turn the hostages loose. And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. We have to pray for Hamas to be saved. Did you realize that? That's the only thing that takes the anger out of a man. It's the only thing that takes the murderer out of a man. I'm off track again. I'm never going to get done. But there's lunch downstairs. I just thought of that. I feel at ease, even at peace. The people spiritual. And these can be of any tribe, nation, or people. Romans 9, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. Verse 6, for they are not all Israel who are Israel. What? They, nor are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham. They're not all just because they were born into the family physically. Listen, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Why would he say that? 
Isaac is the child of faith, the child of promise that Abraham and Sarah believed in. You are of Israel. You are of the people of God if you believe what God promised. So if you're sitting here today wondering where Jesus is, let me tell you, he's coming back. I believe it. And he's not coming back to play patty kick. He's not coming back to save. He did that the first time. He's coming back to judge and even judge his own people, Israel. And the remnant of purified Israel will be left. That's a promise. Let me go on. Romans 9, verse 27. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel are as the sand of the sea. Listen, the remnant will be saved. Remember I said a small group? The remnant of believing Israel will be saved. Romans 11 now, in the context littered with the nationalism of Israel and the people of God, Verse 5, even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Those, is, those are identified as spiritual Israel. They keep their eyes on the prize. They look for a reward along with us, Jesus Christ. Let me try and jam one more point in before the Lord's table and lunch. The third choice Moses made by faith was this. Faith chooses God's face. Faith chooses God's face. I really struggled with putting this into a point that would encapsulate verse 27. But here is my best attempt at Eternity and invisibility. Listen. Hebrews eleven twenty seven. By faith he, Moses, forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. we might need the rest of our lives on this one. I'm not saying that flippantly or jokingly. I'm saying it with the enormity of who this was that Moses once saw revealed in a burning bush who said these words in naming himself. He said, when they ask, who is your God? He said, I am. This propositional statement of truth, I am the self-existent one. I'm letting you see some fire, but that's not me. Moses said, let me see. God said, you can't and live. Moses said, let me see. God said, here, I put him in a cleft of the rock. And the glory of God passed by, and from the crevice in the, the shelter of the rock, he got to see what the old King James, and I love the old King James, says, the hindmost parts of God. 
just the fading glory of him. Who is our God? Who is this people of God? What is our God like? Moses knew. And he was able to leave Egypt behind. He forsook Egypt. means he left it. He abandoned it. He said, it's not mine. He disassociated himself with the best parts of the world at the day. Let me tell you, who can build a pyramid he left behind? He said, nope. And we are living in the richest nation in the world. And I think there's a parallel for us. Because don't you feel sometimes the tentacles of this United States that we live in? This good life that we have and live. And somebody says, that's not good for me. But it really is. And we feel it pulling at us and drawing us in. And all of the different things that are available for us out in the other mystical world, the ethosphere, or whatever that thing is that the internet connects to, which might be hell. I'm not sure that was just for free. But there's some bad stuff that bubbles up and it pulls at us and it draws us and. How did Moses do this? How did he forsake Egypt as though it was nothing? You know, I remember uh, I, was in the, I was in the military, some of you know. I was in the army, which of course is the lesser of all. It's been there the longest. That means it's the most messed up. They've had a lot longer time to write things. And the more they write, the worse it gets. That's why only the Marines are filling their recruiting stuff because they decided to stay Marines. And everybody, okay, I'm done. <laughs> but I remember being stationed in Fort Polk, Louisiana in what they called the North Fort. And the North Fort, well, military renewal hadn't gotten there yet. The stuff that was there was built in World War II. But, you know, they were kind-hearted about the barracks that we lived in. When they made it for those guys in World War II, they put them up off of that squishy old soil that's down there in Louisiana. It's all moist and running with water. And they put stilts on the barracks so that we could live in the air. And it was really kind of nice in the shower room, especially where there were holes in the floor and you really didn't need the drains. Well, one day they came into the barracks and they told us, you all have got to pack up your stuff right now. You, you got to move out. I was, where are we going? We're going to another set of barracks that look just like these ones. But why? Well, it turns out there's so many bats in the attic that actually you guys are living in a toxic environment. They've been in here testing and there's so much bat guano, and I'm not translating that for you. It's unsafe for you to live here. And you know what? We forsook that place. We packed our stuff. We were gone. There's nobody that said, oh, I want to go back. Could I please live there? Never again. And that's, I think, kind of what, what Moses was able to do by way of comparison. How do we break the hold of this world, this life? 
this earth, this United States, all the things that are kind of grabbing onto us in a way and stealing at what we're trying to do in walking spiritually and walking with God in reality. You know what I mean? How did, he, how, did he, how did he do this and endure? And even not that, it says here, he forsook Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king. You know, when you defy the king, it's a bad thing. And Moses did when he decided, I'm going to be one of these people. Like he was a zealot, as most young men are. I'm a Hebrew. I'm going to go be a Hebrew. There it is. And he said, oh, I see injustice. I'm going to do something about it. And here it is. Listen. There was a time when Moses is walking along and he sees one of his Hebrew brethren being beaten by an Egyptian. And in his zeal, he says, I can handle this. And he falls upon the Egyptian and he kills him dead. And then he takes him and buries him in the sand because he knows it's wrong to murder, especially to murder an Egyptian. He's really identifying with the Hebrews now but you know what happened? The guy he saved must have ratted on him. You know, the Hebrew he saved. Because when he tried to go and be with his people, he heard this in Exodus chapter 2. His own people said back to him, then he said, who made you, this is one of his own, said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Of course, this is a play on words because he knew at one time he had been the prince and a judge over them as Pharaoh's daughter's son. He said this, do you tend to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by the well. Wait a minute. I just read in Hebrews, not fearing the wrath of the king. Something, the Bible must be lying. Is it lying? Or are we not understanding? He ran to Midian, sat down by a well. That's indeed true. Helped some little girls water their sheep, keep the goat herders back while they did. And ended up marrying them. The rest is history, and that's how I met your mother. And then for 40 years, he's in Midian. The zealot who was willing to kill for God to be the deliverer in one swoop by his own hand as now learning to herd sheep because he chose the people of God. And then God comes along after that 40-year training period and says, Now the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 4, verse 19, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. Notice he didn't take his own hand to kill an Egyptian. He took the rod of God with him. And now 10 chapters later, time has gone by, there has been quite a number of plagues visited upon Egypt by the hand of God through Moses. Exodus 14.10, And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were afraid. 
Even after the ten miracles, here come the Egyptians to attack them as they're leaving the land of Egypt. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us this way? So bring us up out of to bring us up out of Egypt. Is this not the word which we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would be have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Choose the people of God, and that's exactly what it's going to sound like. I'm not kidding, am I? No. Because we can all be a bunch of scaredy cats. But let me show you a man of faith who's been trained 40 years in the desert, herding around some sheep. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Our text says, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, encapsulating a lot of time, like 40-some years, from fear to faith. Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Isn't that what the psalmist is saying sometimes to us in a place in which we are? Be still and know what? Be still and know that I am God. Moses saying, be still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Oh, believers, sometimes don't we just need to shut up and listen? And watch what God's doing unfold without jumping in the middle of it. I'm not saying for me that's got to be for you. <laughs> I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to jump in the middle. No, okay. But isn't that the beauty of Now listen. Here's Jesus. Luke 12. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he was killed, has killed, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. How did he forsake Egypt? How did he endure? How did he overcome the fear of the wrath of the king? Our text says this, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Brothers and sisters, listen to that. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense in common English vernacular. That is the very least paradoxical. Some would say oxymoronic, but that doesn't fit. Paradoxical, probably yes. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. See, that, that is where faith comes in here. What is that really about? We are used to putting faith in physical things. 
things that we can see, things that are tangible. Even the sun that we depend on, we can see it. And even if we can't see it, in a sense, we can feel the warmth. We know it's there. And it still makes the day bright, even on a cloudy day like today. It's there. How am I, how are you supposed to see him who is invisible and endure on that? That that's enough. That that's enough for you. How do you do that? How did Moses get there? How about a little lesson from David, the poet, the musician, the harpist of God? David said this in Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Huh? If your God was bound by this earth, by the physical boundaries which you have to function in, you'd be worried you're alone a lot, wouldn't you? What if some brother or sister in China needs him? And my little trouble that I need him on doesn't rate. Where is he then? How does God get to all of us anyway? How does God hear all your prayers and mine? Our view of God's too low is our problem. It's too human. God is not a human. And any image we could make of him that makes him into a human, makes him into a something visible, dethrones God from the height of invisibility. I want to see you, Moses said. You can't and live. No man has seen God at any time. No man has seen God at any time. Is that supposed to make it bad? No, it's supposed to make it good. Even David said, therefore, my heart is glad and my, glo and my glory rejoices. My flesh also rests in hope. Because his God is always before him. His God is always at his right hand. He believed it. He knew it. That's a person of faith. How about the Apostle Paul? How did he endure his life? You want to be, you want to be with the, the best of the best? You want to follow with Apostle Paul? Well, then get ready to suffer. Paul says in 2 Corinthians verse, seven, uh, verse 17 of chapter 4, listen, for our light affliction. Sounds like Moses chose affliction. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. Do you believe that? No, no, you really don't. If you did, you wouldn't complain so much. You'd see the purposes of God. Listen to this, verse 18. While we do not look at the things which are seen, look we do not look at the things which are seen, 
Okay. But at the things that are not seen. Okay, Pastor, can we have that lunch now? You want to get into the deepest and the highest and the broadest and the widest. Read your Bible. Do you want to see God? You're seeing him right now. Verbally. In your mind that God made, in your heart that God fashioned, in the spirit that is in you, and the Holy Spirit that guides you, these words are having an effect. Can I have an amen? For you're starting to see a God who isn't seen and wanting that more than what you can see. When this world becomes passing, when it's wealth, when it's riches, when it's youth, which by the way fades, I just found that out. Okay, I found it out nine years ago. But now I'm sure of it. If that was all that I am, then I'm nothing because I'm nothing of my former self. And if the wealth that you have or always wish you had, and some of you have had some, and then it done, and it's done for you what the Bible says it often does, it's taken wings of eagles and flown off. And all of that can pass in a moment. Everything that you see and that you are seeing will one day be totally gone. And you will be glad of it. You will forsake it. But you can start forsaking it now. He says, do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Listen, Paul says, for the things which are seen are temporary. But the things which are not seen are what? Eternal. We have to be eternally minded in the invisible God and in the invisible kingdom and in the invisible eternal state that is described only in the Bible, not by monuments, not by pyramids, not by gold, but with words imbued with the power of God. The word of God is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing into the separation of joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and your intents and your heart is being revealed right now. Are you a faith or not a faith? Are you saying, Pastor Fred, you're so full of, I don't know what, but you know, maybe you should just go on a mountaintop, you know, suck your thumb and think on these thoughts. I'm going back to the world that I can see. And some of you, I would better thinking that. I say, Repent. For all that you see now is not all there is. And you know it. Things are happening where we can't see them. In a little while here in Hebrews, he's going to say, do not neglect to entertain strangers. For in doing so, some have entertained, oh, you beat me to it, angels. That's a world you can't see. But it is fully functional and submissive to God. Timothy was a timid pastor. Or it seems by the way in which Paul bucks him up in First and Second Timothy. 
And he needs him to stay in Ephesus and he needs him to stay strong and he needs him to fight against error and all the corruption that's seeping back into the church and to confront the error that is there and replace it with truth. And after he even starts by saying some of those things in the very beginning of the book and then again in the end, but I'm only going to use one. See, I'm saving you time. 1 Timothy 1, 17. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Paul says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Did you see him? Eternal, immortal, invisible. You can't see him with your eyes open. I don't mean walk around with your eyes closed all the time. I'm saying physical eyes can't see that. The heart of faith sees that. See, that's what the writer of Hebrews has been trying to get through our heads in these many verses. 11.1. Now faith is is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence, the blepo, the seeing of things not seen. You can't be an evidentialist as a person of faith. There might be evidence that demands an answer but the invisible God demands we see him. We have to make it our life's pursuit if we want to endure this life and escape this world. And I don't mean your ultimate salvation. I mean your walk of salvation. Your faithful walk with God. Until we make it our effort to see God the invisible. Would you join me in that pursuit? He's found here again and again and again. But you have to go again and again and again together with the people of God. And then we'll stand against anything by faith. I got to pray so we can have the Lord's table, so let's do that. Lord God, your thoughts, thoughts toward me are high. They cannot attain them. So said David the psalmist, so say we. The disciples, your own, who walked with you for years and years, said, Lord, we believe. Lord, help our unbelief. We pray that to you today, Lord, as well. Help us, Lord, to look beyond this tangible world, this visible world. Help us to open our Bibles and open our hearts and open our minds to the truth of you. You who are he who is the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, who God alone is wise. 
May we be people, we be the people who honor you and glorify you for that and then live in endurance knowing you're coming and that your promise that we would one day see you not in these fleshly bodies which can't see you and live but in glorified bodies we pray, O oh Lord God, send Jesus. And I pray today there's somebody here today who is not of faith. You know, Lord God, and I pray that this sermon on faith and what it really is would penetrate deep into their heart. I pray that you would cause them to determine that they want to know this God who is invisible, that they want to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, who became visible so we could see God and who's coming again he who saved us by dying in our place is real. And by faith we trust in that, though we've never seen him. Help them with their belief. And let us be people of thanks as we come before your table, this Lord's table, and we celebrate that which we, we've never seen, our Jesus and his sacrifice. Help us to see it today. In what we do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.